Welcome to this week's episode. In this one, I have a conversation with Julie Decker, the director and CEO of the Anchorage Museum. When she took the job, Julie made a radical shift in the way museums typically function. Rather than just collecting and displaying artifacts, she decided to transform the Anchorage Museum into a living museum, focused on local issues by examining present themes in order to look at Alaska's cultures and traditions in a contemporary way. Ultimately, this shift was meant to answer one fundamental question. How does the museum and its network make Alaska a better place? This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's Patreon dot com slash crude magazine and pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed to the company man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, and Aquila Space. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to Julie Decker. Julie is uniquely qualified for the position she's in, having grown up around her dad, Don Decker, a prominent Alaskan artist whose work goes back to the 70s. When she was a kid, she watched as he did the artist thing, struggle and appreciate the creative process, and then learn to let his art exist outside of himself. She understands this dance between the indefinable creative process and its payoff because she's an artist as well. Today, she talks about how she finds things like the sound of pencil on paper soothing because of what it represents, a quiet and contemplative meditation. So here she is, Julie Decker. This red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. Welcome to the show, Julie. Thank you. We were talking about a few depressing things earlier. <laughs> and, it's healthy. And now we're deciding to talk about some some happy stuff. Okay. Okay, so if you were to pitch the Anchorage Museum to me, what would you say? I would say that the Anchorage Museum is a uh, place about place. That uh, it's showing that a museum can be a powerful storyteller, not just about the past, but about our present and our future. That's a great elevator pitch. <laughs> <laughs> um do you think museums today have a different appeal than they used to? Absolutely. I think they used to be these cabinets of curiosities. They were about preserving uh, objects and items from uh, ages past and helping people remember. And I think uh, there's a new imperative to 
be open, to be um, something that's about community, to being less object-based. Um, and in my mind, although people give me a lot of flack about this, I think our history needs to inform our current and our present and our future. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or else we're doomed to repeat it, right? Or else we're doomed to repeat it. Yeah. And I think... What we often lack is a way to envision what's next and how do we uh, have this collaborative, collective, positive future. And I think our role should be helping people envision that. And I guess maybe taking it a step further, considering the museum, how can we look at, say, exhibits to inform us of the present? Oh, I think that's of great interest to us. And I think maybe we're radical as a museum in that we think exhibitions are not our primary role, um, that they need to be, they're amazing things to build and design and to curate and to present, but they should be a platform for conversation and a way to engage people. So um, we moved from being in a, a museum that talked a lot about exhibitions to being a museum that does uh, hundreds of public programs each year. So that, um, you know, I think they're critically important, but they're a backdrop to what really needs to happen and wh how we really need to engage people. You know, I just realized I, I have more than a few questions about exhibitions. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I mean, I, you know, I love the construction part of exhibitions, the care and the thought and the editing that goes into those. And, you know, the art nerd in me just loves the process of fabrication and design that goes into those. But the part of me that cares about this community and our global community knows that museums need to be about a lot of things that go beyond that. And so what does that include? So we have a project called Seed Lab, which I think is a manifestation of that idea that, you know, we're a large community institution. We're one of the largest cultural institutions in the state. And I think that means we have a, a, a different kind of imperative, which is to add capacity to this community. So um, we have a building that we renovated across the street um, to become a Seed Lab. But Seed Lab is a lot more than a building. It's about how do we work with artists and designers, which is, a, you know, a a client of museums and a, you know, something, a sector that we serve, but how do we work with that sector to do more than create a damage center narrative to talk about our place in ways that point out what we are, maybe what we already know, um, and ask that sector to be part of a problem solving partner uh, with community members, community change makers, people in neighborhoods to help us imagine the future of this community. So um, being outside of our, our comfort zone, outside of our walls, outside of um, a traditional interpretation of our mission, but really thinking how does the museum and our network make this place a better place for a lot of, of, a lot of people, um, more than who would just think to enter a museum. So it sounds like... That's a case of uh, long-term versus short-term. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, the museum has no sustainability if this community isn't sustainable, if our climate isn't sustainable, if um, northern places aren't relevant. And so I think the museum is important in creating a narrative for place that's empowered, that becomes global, and through um, empowering voices, including empowering marginalized voices, hopefully we lift uh, the broader place up, um, not just a museum. You know, I've always looked at 
exhibits or the museum in general as as you're walking, say, through an exhibit, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like this documentary that you're experiencing. Yeah. I think for us, the most interesting exhibitions are when we think of a topic that you can approach from a lot of different viewpoints. So we love it that we're a multidisciplinary museum because you can approach it from an art point of view and you can approach it from a science point of view. You can look at it historically. um, You can look at it culturally. You can appreciate it from a design level. So an example might be we thought camouflage would be a fantastic exhibition because artists design ships and design camouflage patterns. You have the military, um, you know, the obvious and expected way of looking at camouflage, but also animals camouflage themselves. And so for us, like you need all these different ways that somebody might connect to an exhibition. And then there's the the work that we do to figure out how do you travel through space and um, encounter these different ways and uh, hopefully different ways to think and to think anew and to make new connections. Um, so that's what we nerd out on. That's great. You know, <laughs> just listening to that, it seems like it's very uh, tangential or like stream of consciousness. You know, you're, you're looking at camouflage as, say, an article of clothing, right? Yeah. And then... How can you parallel that to something else? You know, you're like animals, animals camouflage. Yeah, I think, you know, we could do a linear story and it's a timeline that you wander through. But um, I think you're kind of in and done then. And what we really want is to make new connections that people haven't thought about before um, and to hopefully want to explore those connections further in other ways, whether they pick up a book then and the uh, a bookstore that they're wandering through or they go online or they leave wanting to make something or they leave wanting to make a difference. Um, all of those layers are pretty cool if we can inspire any any one of those actions. Which I think is pretty great because, I mean, everything is connected. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I started by saying to me the Anchorage Museum is a museum that's about place. So we're not just an art museum and we're not just a history museum and we're not just a science museum. Really, we're using all of those disciplines to talk about our place in the north. We're talking about Anchorage and we're talking about Alaska and we're talking about the international circumpolar north. Um, and then we're talking about how do we know that place and how do we know that place is relevant to the rest of the globe. And like that's a pretty cool story to be able to tell and you can tell it in a thousand different ways. It's almost one of the biggest stories in Alaska that you can tell. It like, is. how do we fit yeah. in? It's our identity. It's, it's everything. It's absolutely our identity. And I grew up in Anchorage. I have told this story a lot, but growing up here, I felt like we had kind of adopted this disadvantaged narrative. This will date me, but we used to get The Tonight Show a week late. And, you know, our grocery store was. Uh, waiting for the fresh (laughs) fruit and vegetables to arrive. Um, And there was the sense that we were, you know, if only we could mimic other places, if only we were like the mainstream, if only we were like those major urban centers. And I felt like we were self-limiting, that our narrative was too constricted and it was unempowered. And I became really interested in what if um, we built a new narrative for this place, was, which was, isn't that cool? <laughs> isn't it cool that we're not like every other place? And isn't it amazing that we're in this epic landscape? And isn't it cool that this epic landscape taught us this set of skill sets and that we had to become a different kind of inventor? And isn't it cool that this place was occupied? occupied for millennia by indigenous communities that uh, have a knowledge that 
enabled them to live in these extreme climates for thousands and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And that made us distinct. And so the idea that we needed to be like every other place to me was maybe the wrong story. You know, I think that a lot of Alaskans get hung up on that. You know, every time that there's a new chain restaurant that sure. comes here, you know, yeah. we're excited about it. And yeah. I'm I'm 31, and I remember seeing the commercials to Olive Garden, for yeah. example. Sure. And we never mm -hmm. had Olive Garden. Yeah. So to have one now, I think, is kind of, whether we think about it consciously or subconsciously, we're thinking of this grand induction into the, yeah. to the larger culture of, that is the United States. It's like we're part of you. Yeah, that's right. But And I think that's okay. We can crave those things. I mean, that's part of our culture too is the longing, <laughs> the longing to be like other places. But I think there needs to be other things that are true at the same time and the things that we embrace about this place that are the things that make us, you know, it's not, I think it's not a form of exceptionalism, but it's a way to think um, – that the perception that we're on this periphery doesn't make us irrelevant and makes us more relevant. Mm -hmm. And that um, the way we've learned to solve problems and to be resilient is is a powerful story and we should tell it. And I think that we all feel that pretty acutely when we make it out of the wintertime. You yeah. know, when the summer hits, sure. we're like, we made it. Yeah. Well, I think it's an Alaskan way to poke fun at ourselves and to laugh at those things and, you know, laugh that we're so excited that we got a Krispy Kreme. But, you, <laughs> but we also know that when we leave the state, we're the first to brag about where we came from and to say, you know what, we, we walk with bears. And, so, you know, there's that pride and that distinction, too. And I think the true Alaskan is the one that does both. <laughs> That's great. I like that. We walk with bears. <laughs> <laughs> and we do. <laughs> so how long have you been the director and the CEO of the Anchorage Museum? This is my sixth year as director, and I was the chief curator before that. But I have a really long association with the museum. Um, <laughs> uh, I, was a, I went there on field trips as a kid. I did my first college internship at the museum. I was a contract art curator there for a long time. I got married there. I had my prom there. So there's like this <laughs> really were weird. You were you born there? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I was born there. I'm pretty sure I will die there. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, and I think that's Alaskan too. You have this, you know, these institutions and these places are really strangely intertwined with your personal and professional life. Um, I didn't, though I say I have this long association, I never thought I'd be the director of the Anchorage Museum. It wasn't what I thought was my path, but it's a lovely place to end up because it's a way to, you know, build a narrative for a place you really care about and to hopefully make a difference. So. Without sounding too much like a localist, because <laughs> I try not to be, but how important is it to have somebody from Alaska be in your position? I'm not a localist either. Um, and I think, you know, there's plenty of wisdom that we can import um, from people and projects and places other than our own. And, you know, I know there were people that were uh, glad that a local was chosen to run the museum, but I think I think the advantage in, in me being a local is that I do understand the trajectory of this place, but maybe more importantly, I just really care about this place. It's you know, it's home. And where do you want, you know, what do you want to improve more than home? Um, mm -hmm. And so maybe that's the advantage. You know, I talked to Aaron Leggett, 
Yeah. Who also works at the Anchorage Museum a while back. And he, he loves this podcast. By yeah. Way. Yeah. He's <laughs> shout out to Aaron. <laughs> but he said uh, something to the effect that somebody from here is going, exactly like you just said, is going to care about this place more than somebody who's not. Yeah. And I guess to take that a step further, I think that we care about it because this is where we're from. This is where our family is. This is where all of our memories are. So we want this place to be better for the next generation. Yeah. And I think that that, that makes us want it a little bit more. Yeah. I think we're invested in it. And if you're really invested in a place, you will you will do more for that place. You will do more in your role. I mean, to me, my role is not just being a museum director. I need to think of, you know, I, I see so much potential in this place and I'm like eager and feel this urgency to see this place realize its potential. Um, you know, we're in an interesting moment politically and socially in Alaska and you know, you feel like this, oh, we have so much potential. Let's not let's not waste that. And I think that creates a passion that drives you in a way that's far beyond the definition that uh, of a director of a museum. I, I see this as I have a responsibility to this place. I think in moments like these, like you just said politically, I think that this is when art is the most important. Art is going to help us envision what could be next. Um, art can, uh, art and design to me are often forms of optimism because they believe in problem solving. I think there's a, there's an urge to tell a story and those stories can be much more powerful than data that isn't visualized. So in your time at the museum, what have you seen change physically with the museum, as well as the public perception of the museum? Well, I think there was an importation of that, what we talked about, that desire to be mainstream and a desire to be like everyone else. And I think there was a period where the museum felt like it needed to have all the shows that were in other places in order to validate itself and to have credibility. I believe the museum should be a producer um, and an exporter and not just an importer. That if we value the talent and the creativity and the potential of this place, then we need to work with the people here, um, celebrate these ideas, build it ourselves, say that has value. So I think that's been one change as we design and curate and tell our own stories with our own exhibitions and we send them to other places um, rather than just taking other ideas and bringing them here. Physically, the building has changed a lot. It's a five-acre building now. (laughs) 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 Um, We added on um, our Art of the North galleries 18 months ago, so we added 25,000 square feet to the museum. We renovated the Alaska exhibition. Um, I think, to me, we created a cohesive building, whereas before you might have come in and been a little bit confused about who we were and what our mission was and um, what our visual perspective was. And I think it feels like one place right now that you understand we're exploring the North through all of these different perspectives. At least that's what I hope. And I think it looks a little less 1980s. Yeah, I think, you know... I think it's a meshing of the two, though. You know, when you yeah. when you walk up those stairs now, yeah. um, I still see the same museum. You know, you have the paintings, right? Like yeah. the paintings didn't change. Nope. Just the area surrounding them yeah. changed. You know, yes. that's more modern. Yeah. 
No, I think you don't want to lose that. You don't want to erase history. History is critically important, including the history of a building and people's memories with the place. Um, you want it to be recognizable, but I think change and progression is also important. I think also what I notice is different about the museum is that on first Fridays or other nights, I would know everybody who came to the museum. It'd be, you know, hi, so-and-so, and it'd be the, you know, essentially the same crowd. And now we get 4,000 people in, and it's all ages and all communities, and I don't know everyone, and I think that's the most exciting thing that could happen. Being able to introduce it to new and... That is relevant to more than 40 people, and that different people are coming each time, and that there's teenagers there on dates, and there's families, and there's visitors to the state, and there's locals who thought, hey, I've heard there's something going on at the museum. And I think if you can uh, have an audience that's wide enough um, that there's different people meeting each time, maybe you've created something that, that matters. Yeah. Something culturally enriching. Yeah. Yeah. So the Anchorage Museum is a cultural hub of Alaska. Maybe generally... And then also specifically, how do you keep it that way? Mm. We have conversations about that every day. Um, We do a lot of public programs. I mean, I think... um, There is a recognition in the public that we do a lot, but I think only a few people know how much we do because some people might know what we're doing in science programming. Some people may come with their children. Some people come because they're artists and they're interested in that. But I think we know that we're trying to do a lot of things for a lot of different communities and a lot of different audiences, and I think that's our job. So we have conversations about how do you have these big moments that mean a lot to a lot of people, and then how do you have small programs that you're serving specific needs and exploring new ideas and inviting in uh, new audiences, and also how do we get out of ourselves and out of our building and into neighborhoods so that it's not just a, if you build it, they will come, because I think there's an arrogance and a authoritativeness in that that's stale and probably not serving this place that we need to. So every day we're having conversations about how can we do better? Who should we reach? Who are we leaving out? Um, How can we be more inclusive? What can we do that's cool? (laughs) And what can we do that's important? Um, And hopefully they're both cool and important. (laughs) (laughs) That's the hope. (laughs) The intersection of those two things. Yes, that's a sweet spot. (laughs) How do you know that you've succeeded with a project that represents a specific culture in Alaska, say you do a an exhibit about or focused on Alaska natives, you know, a f- certain facet of that lifestyle, how do you know that that has succeeded? Uh, well, I think with every project, you know the places that you failed and that you succeeded, and you hope that the um, larger arc is that you did something for good reasons and made an impact and that you'd keep growing that. I don't like projects that are one-ofs because I think we should be doing this work all the time and they should be building off of each other. Um, I think museums have a really tragic, poor history in terms of representing culture. We believe that if we're going to do an exhibition about indigenous culture, then um, we have indigenous curators that are leading that effort, that we're working with indigenous communities, that we're inviting indigenous artists, that it's not a museum voice, but that we're creating a space for conversation and a space for people to represent their own cultures. 
Um, I think museums have long thought that there was one voice, um, a curatorial voice, often a white voice, Mm -hmm. um, telling the stories for other cultures. And museums have done a lot of work but still have a lot of work to do in figuring out what that means to represent and present. You know, I think that's really great. I think that that is something that permeates not just museum culture. I think that it is, you see it in journalism. You know, you see it in anything. Film. uh, Film, exactly. Mm -hmm. And now what we're having, at least in the things that I'm seeing around me in my bubble, is that you are seeing people within that culture talking about their culture, which is more representative of that culture, right? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think youth and younger generations need to see that there's people that have their voice and are using it and that there's people that they recognize um, from their culture uh, being activists and having conversations and leading conversations. And I think our role as a museum should be to help make that or help further the possibilities of that rather than thinking we are the expert voice. So, and I think that's, you know, in Anchorage right now, we have a tremendous opportunity and um, uh, imperative to do that for a lot of other communities, too. I mean, there's a lot of people that can be left out of our historical narratives in Alaska, um, and we need to figure out how we tell new ones. By reaching out to these different communities. Yeah, reaching out to communities in terms of museums. Museums need to collect outside of traditional models. Um, we need to rethink w- who holds knowledge in communities, who has the, st- uh, the stories, uh, who are the influencers in those stories. Just it needs to be a little more open sourced. So I told you that I had some exhibit questions. Okay, <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Can you take me through the process of choosing a new exhibit? Uh, Sure. I think we're unusual for a museum in that we're open to ideas coming to us from other places and other people. Um, So we do have a lot of people coming to us with ideas, and we're open to that. Um, We've built exhibits collaboratively with a lot of community organizations, with artists, with groups of artists, with historians, with scientists. Uh, There's a a group of people from curators to people in marketing to our collection staff to the people who build exhibits that have conversations about topics or proposals that came to us or about our own ideas of what we should be exploring or presenting to the community. So those are big conversations that we have. And as I mentioned, the, the ideas that have proven themselves to be the most successful are the ones where... Uh, you have the historian saying, well, that's important because we could look at it through um, this lens and these photographs and these objects. And you have an artist saying, well, I want to I could create an installation or a film around that. And you have a science scientist saying, you know, here's that thread. So, you know, we get excited when there's a lot of voices in the room saying what it should be because it's much easier. You know, it's a good idea when there's a lot of chatter and you need it to then your job is to edit and find those four things that are important. If there's no chatter, you know, it's a really deadly boring exhibition 
and maybe we should. <laughs> maybe we should. Just maybe it. we shouldn't do it. Um, yeah, and you know, they're often they're four year projects. Um, you do a lot of research. You find the experts in the community. You bring them in. You have conversations. Um, you uh, sometimes it can take a year to borrow artwork and objects from other museums. We work with a lot of artists, so we're planning installations with artists and, you know, the logistics of an exhibition, I think a lot of people can't imagine. We have a design team that figures out how, not just how everything fits in a space, but what the physical and emotional experience might be as you travel through it. We have conservators who care about what the light levels are and um, how people might access the objects and how we protect what's in there. So it's, you know, these really complex conversations. We build a lot of things on site. So we have like amazing inventors and carpenters on staff that work magic. We, uh, in you know, three weeks, we'll take down one exhibit and build a 10,000 square foot new one. So it's like we've built an entire new house in three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I will never stop being excited about <laughs> what we construct and build. And, you know, often that behind the scenes work is the best. Um, but we kind of hope to make that invisible to to people that come in because they don't want to know um, how hard it was to make it happen. <laughs> You got to make it look easy. You got to make it look easy. Yeah, it's seamless. So how many people kind of ballpark are involved in setting up an exhibit? Uh, Well, I'd say we have a staff of about 80, and I'd say 79 of them are involved in putting together an exhibition. (laughs) Who's the the odd person out? I think that might be the person who's doing data entry for accounting. So they're busy, though, still. (laughs) But they're tracking our expenses, so maybe it's 80. (laughs) You know, I think you already mentioned this, but I, I think that's an important question. So who do you have in mind when you choose an exhibit? Is it the local or the tourist? And does that change seasonally? We don't design exhibitions for tourists. Um, we think that if we're doing our job and talking about our place and making sure it's relevant to our our local community and telling a story that they recognize, um, but find um, that they recognize as their place, but think about it in a new way that visitors to this place will learn something much richer and more meaningful than if we were designing it only for a visitor and somebody who didn't have a relationship with this place. I think what's important and interesting to me is that most people coming from outside um, or who never come here have this very black and white simplistic view of Alaska and northern places. And our job is to show the complexity, the complexity of our issues, the complexity of our landscape, the complexity of the people that live here and of their life ways. And so we need to do that in a way that locals celebrate and recognize and feel like we're honoring their life ways. And I, I think through that complexity, visitors will learn something new. You know, this whole whole process, I think, is really interesting because it is much more academic than kind of assembly or production line. You know, instead of being going to yeah. a an exhibit in another museum, you, for example, being like, oh, I like this exhibit. We'll take this in four years. Yeah. You know, you're not doing that. Yeah. You're curating and creating your own exhibits based on the uh, the landscape and the people around us. Yeah, I think that's how we honor our place. You know, I I really believe that everything we should do, everything we do needs to pay homage (laughs) 
to this place. And even if we're bringing in an exhibit outside that we're doing that because we think it says something new about this place or connects the way we think about this place in a different way. So, you know, you bring in an exhibit from another place perceived as peripheral, then we learn something new about our place. Mm. But yeah, I mean, we could have a simple, you know, how do you make it fit? It's like, you know, trying on clothes if we simply imported. But there's, you know, everybody on staff is super excited about how we can own it and really feel like that's what we're supposed to do for this community. So, yeah. Do you have an exhibit that comes to mind where you're like, you know, we really we really nailed it with that one? So many. I mean, we we did an exhibit on Andy Warhol and you might think that had nothing to do with place, but we were really interested in ideas around identity and what does it mean to feel marginalized and how do people respond to that? So we had these really great conversations, but we also, you know, we were nerding out on the fact that we had Andy Warhol's wigs and that, you know, you could see the sweat spots on them. And there's like this (laughs) (laughs) really intimate um, relationship that you develop with the subject of these exhibitions and the history and the conversations they can create. And then we had an exhibition on Arctic flight, um, and we had to figure out how we got this 1920s airplane onto the third floor of the museum. And we had all these conversations about, do we take the wings off? And we tried to fit the fuselage in our elevator by measuring, and we ended up having to hoist it up three floors. And so at midnight, you know, there's a crew trying to get that up there. Um, And (laughs) we have an... uh, um, We did an exhibition on pop culture, and so, you know, there's all these different stories, and I love them all, but partly what I love about them is knowing, like, what we tried to make happen, and sometimes we may be more successful than others, but, you know, I do know that we try super hard to make something, to make that space feel different each time, Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like, who do you love the most out of your children? I just, like, (laughs) they all had different ages that were super special, But, you know, there was an era for me where I felt like we were coming into our own and starting to make our own exhibits. And we did this exhibition where that was playing off the idea of a Lego and what you can construct from Legos. And it was one of our um, first big exhibitions that we did as a team. And everybody who came in said, where did you borrow this from? Or that's cool that you brought that here. And there was kind of a high-fiving between the scenes, like people think that (laughs) they don't know that we did this like that. You know, there was a credibility that came with us. It's like we're grown up enough to present something that people recognize as as real. And and uh, and now I think people take that for granted that we're going to do that every time. So that comes with a certain pressure and expectation. And we like the challenge of trying to meet that every time. You know, I was just thinking that that is such a new idea with museums when you look at something like the Louvre, you know, Napoleon just got all this stuff and was like, check out, you know, the Code of Hammurabi. Check yeah. check out all of these uh, these pharaohs. He didn't make the Code of Hammurabi. You know, <laughs> he, he potentially stole it. You know, same thing yeah. with the the uh, the mummies. Not the mummies, but the, uh, yeah, the those the are pharaohs. probably stolen too. <laughs> yeah, there probably were too. Um, but when you're talking about the the joy that it brought you guys because somebody thought that you had gotten this exhibit from somewhere else. You know, that's a pretty new idea. 
It is. And, you know, I used to go to these museum conferences um, and feel like the little guy, you know, like we'll never compare to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and uh, we can't be the Louvre and we don't have that kind of collection and we never will. And, you know, I used to feel a little bit cheapish. Um, and I went to to feeling like, you know, when you listen to those institutions, they're so giant and the excitations are so heavy and change is not part of that culture that, the you know, I'm sorry I mentioned specific museums, but, you know, they're trying to turn these enormous ships and figure out how they're relevant every day to people. Um, you know, there's tourists that will always come, but how do you mean something to a local place and how do you mean something to artists and how do you stay relevant and how do you talk about local issues and how do you talk about global issues? And I realized that our advantage was that we weren't that, that we could be a new kind of museum, that we were already positioned and could turn our ship. And then I started to feel that as like, this is our advantage, that our place is relevant in the world, that we had a team that was open to creating a new kind of museum. And, uh, you know, maybe it was never going to be the... Uh, the Louvre, but there's a need for something else too. There's a need for a new kind of museum that's that's about our everyday in a way that's exciting. Mm-hmm. So I asked the crude Instagram followers if they had any questions for you, and Eric Roberts asks, "What is the biggest shift in public interest regarding exhibits, and do you ever get any requests?" Yes, we get requests every day for exhibitions and presented with ideas. I think there's not a day that I don't get many suggestions about what we could be doing. Um, So part of our job is to be a listener. Part of our job is to um, be aware of what's happening outside the museum and understand what might be relevant and how we can be ahead of that conversation so that um, maybe we're helping people think about whatever issue is facing us in a new way. Uh, I remember when I first came into the role of director and I was saying, this is our opportunity to talk about our place in a new way. And we need to build a narrative for our place that's exciting, that looks at the future, that's empowered, that's inclusive. And I had a lot of people say, ugh, you know, are you going to be about Alaska? That's so boring. We already know about Alaska. And, you know, uh, and I, I felt certain that we could do that in a way that felt fresh, that wasn't stale, that wasn't um, what we already knew. Um, but you had to demonstrate that. I had to say, you know, no, this is what we mean. And so I think maybe that's what's different about our exhibitions is that they're homegrown. Hopefully they're fresh, that they're constantly changing. I think what might surprise people is that we do 20 or more changing exhibitions each year. So if you imagine the logistics of that from large to small, it's not a static place. It's always changing. And um, we have a year-long exhibition on food right now, and we built a space with a kitchen in it where you could do food demos, and that has public space within it. Um, We have spaces coming up where um, they're designed for sound experiences and music and film So I think what we're trying to create is not just a static experience, but hopefully a shared and a social experience and a a space that can change depending on what kind of conversation you're having within it. I think we've created a living space and a space that feels alive. I was just about to say that it sounds like a living museum rather than, I don't want to say dead, but like 
Yeah. A historic museum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, static. Yeah, yeah, that might be mm-hmm. a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and we, you know, I, we could be that. Um, would we survive into the future? Would that be sustainable? I don't. I don't think so. I think you need to be a place people care about, that people interact with in different ways. I think what people crave are experiences. Um, you know, we do believe in knowledge. We're an academic institution. We're a university in many ways. We're a school in a lot of ways. We are, you know, aiding scholarship. But, you know, our job is to present that to a public in a way that uh, is relevant, that creates new stories and new connections. And you have to do that in other ways than just hanging things on a wall. Mm-hmm. It, it won't do the trick. So moving on from exhibits, (laughs) (laughs) given the recent state budget vetoes targeting education, vulnerable people in communities, and the arts, why do you think the arts are important to Alaska? I think all of those things are important to Alaska. Um, I'm not just an arts advocate. I'm a uh, a people advocate, a knowledge advocate, um, a community advocate. Um, so I will say those are all the same thing to me. Um, and it might be expected that I simply uh, say why the arts are important in the conversation we're having today, but to me it's so much bigger. It's a valuing of people. It's a valuing of knowledge. It's about uh, what we hold. Um, and I think I believe in the future and the potential of this place. And I think we need artists to help us envision it. I think we need kids to stay and thrive within it. I think we need a university that helps us value knowledge, that creates that next generation of people who are going to invest here. Um, We need artists to invest here to stay. I mean, it's all of this, how do we create a place that's, um, that's building towards something? And all of those pieces are important. What I find exciting about working with artists is that there's a curiosity, there's a a caring about the world, there's a desire to depict something in a new way. I think in this moment, the arts are critical because they are going to help us think in new ways about the ways we are stuck. They'll highlight the um, the vulnerable, they'll highlight... um, the issues that matter, they'll highlight our way forward. And um, what's more powerful than that right now? Mm -hmm. When I was thinking about the importance of of the arts, one example that came to mind was the Imaginarium at the Mm -hmm. museum. I think that for a lot of people in Anchorage, a lot of kids, that's our first introduction to science. You know, Mm -hmm. practical uh, applications? I think art and science to me are really important. And what they have in common is that they pose questions, that they ask us to think in new ways, that they're about invention, they're about experimentation, but maybe most importantly, it's about critical thinking. The Discovery Center at the museum welcomes a lot of families and children and what it's presenting is our landscape and the things that we recognize, but it talks about what creates those, what are the forces that make those, you know, what is... what does it mean that we're surrounded by volcanoes and mountains and um, what are the animals that live here and how do they adapt and thrive? And I think that helps us understand our place, the ways that we're small and the ways that we're huge <laughs> in our landscape, the impact we can make. 
But I hope that a museum offers, especially in a time like this, a way to um, help our children learn to make decisions, make choices, see complexity, um, be critical thinkers. Uh, that's what we're trying to enable. And I hope that the, <laughs> the leaders of our future have that skill. Yeah. Yeah, we can only hope. <laughs> um, what do you think is the most important function of a museum? I think uh, museums are important conveners, that it's a, a space where you can talk about a lot of different things um, from a lot of different viewpoints. And I think our discourse right now is quite black and white and either or and um, two-sided and um, you need a place where um, the gray areas are embraced, where the commonalities are recognized, um, where differences are celebrated. Um, I think museums uh, have an important role to play in um, conveying different <laughs> combating the idea of fake news in a way that truth is important, but also saying that somebody's truth may not be another person's experience and that listening and sharing is uh, critically important. And I'm really uh, excited to see the way that the museum welcomes a lot of people and works with a lot of different communities because if we all live in our bubbles and we all think we uh, have the same experience, uh, we're probably not going to learn and we're not going to uh, work together very well. So... Um, maybe that's my Pollyanna view of what a museum should be. <laughs> I, I think it's a good view. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> you're an artist yeah. as well. Yeah. And your art is or has been featured in the Anchorage Museum, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore, but it has. Before I was an employee of the Anchorage Museum, Yes. What originally got you interested in art? Oh, that's easy. Um, my father is an artist. Um, I didn't think of myself as one for a very long time. Um, but I grew up with um, an artist who taught me a way of looking at the world, how important observation is, um, what curiosity means. I think artists have to be incredibly self-motivated, dedicated, um, in a way compulsive, because you have to keep making. There are very few rewards or consistent rewards for doing that kind of work. And so you learn, or I learned, you know, that passion is something that needs dedication and commitment and discipline and that you needed to understand why you were doing it and why it was important without the, that outside pat on the back. And that's a good skill no matter <laughs> what you're doing in the world. And then I, I went to college thinking I was going to study political science. And I took a drawing class just as a core requirement and thought, whoa, this is super hard. <laughs> and I loved that it was hard. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was really cool that for four hours you could think, oh, I just can't get this. Um, and it was frustrating in a way that I found kind of thrilling. And that led, led me to take an art history class. And I had this Greek art history teacher who was trying to match the arm of a Greek statue to, uh, you know, he just had the arm and he had to find out, find the statue that it fit. And I thought, 
what an amazing life. You know, you do all this research, you're studying history, you're doing archaeology, you're going to crazy places. And I just became kind of addicted to the intelligence in that community, to the, the all the different disciplines that it brought in. Um, and I think because my father is an artist, um, I was really interested in how you elevate that life, that viewpoint, that commitment, that discipline of artists. Um, so I think I became uh, more of an ally and an advocate than thinking that what I made was um, my primary interest. But I think the fact that I do work as an artist and have that experience gives me that empathy um, for what the artist's experience is like in a way that I hope artists recognize that I do recognize the challenge. <laughs> it's a struggle. And I do recognize the struggle, yeah. What was it like when you were a kid watching your dad as an artist, you know, go through that struggle? Because the perspective that you just said is something that you get with hindsight. You know, mm -hmm. you, you understand how important setting goals for yourself is and being appreciative of accomplishing those goals for yourself because nobody is going to pat you on the back because this is a very, being an artist is a very solitary path. It is. Oh, there's so much I learned from uh, my father being an artist. I mean, the sound of pencil on paper is so familiar to me, and it's it's a it's a soothing, <laughs> intimate sound of somebody working and creating. So there's like a uh, this visceral reaction I have to art making, and that's part sound and part visual, and 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 recognizing that isolation you're sitting there making and the world goes on around you and you have to have to be focused um i went with my father when he was having solo exhibitions at galleries and you had to pile all you know you work for a year creating new work and then you bring it to a gallery and all of a sudden it's not yours anymore i'd be presenting it to a public and you have to hear about how people couldn't make it to the exhibition and i liked this but i didn't like that and it becomes about sales and people want to tell you what they bought or what what they didn't buy. And 30 days later, 28 days later, you go pick it all back up again and pile it in your car. And, you know, it's this mammoth effort and emotional investment. Um, and it has to mean something beyond those public moments. Um, otherwise, why in the world would you keep going? Mm -hmm. um, and then I also have these amazing childhood memories of like friends coming over and wondering why we had tinfoil people riding bikes in our living room. <laughs> and um, I, my father would be uh, having shows and, sell, and uh, juried exhibitions at the museum. And one time he was in this phase where he was creating these big round abstract paintings. And one got into an exhibition and he had to bring it to the museum and he tied it on top of our old Toyota to bring it to uh, the museum. And I went with him because um, – that was what we did. So, you know, I loved being his partner in art crime. Um, but the painting fell off our car, and we lived on the hillside, and it landed on its side, and it just rolled and rolled and rolled down, if anybody knows, Hillside Drive. So it rolled miles, and we had to chase the painting with our car. And, and so that's my perception of an artist, that it's this complex, big, um, logistical, emotional thing. And you can love the object, um, but really the object is this thing that rolls. <laughs> and 
um, that really it's the process of making that's uh, the critical moment and the most isolated moment. And it's the part most people will never, ever get or understand. And that may be what's frustrating about it, but it's also what's totally beautiful about it. So I believe in the process and I'm probably not a product art person. What's it like seeing something so personal um, that you've spent so much time with, whether it is somebody else's art or your own art or your father's art, and then giving it to the public, yeah. you know? What is that experience like? I think it's a really jarring experience for a lot of people because um, that act of making is often in your studio or your basement or your living room chair. And, you know, I think artists, uh, people think that artists talk about their work all the time, but it's actually rare. Like there's hardly anybody who can talk about... <laughs> that you don't it's a rare experience to be able to share what mm -hmm. you're making and talk about it in a way that feels respectful and valued or even understood so you know it's this long investment um and when it when you take it to a public i think you feel a letting go and a almost a divorcing from that thing because you know that um that thing that was your own is, is now going to be held by and evaluated and judged by other people. And if you don't emotionally let go of that, it's it's not a fun experience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but also I think there's a catharsis after that. And a lot of artists need a break from making after those experiences. It's like, I don't even want, I don't even know what's next. And then also I think, and I know this from making my own work that sometimes you just don't give a damn about it. Once it goes on exhibit, it's like, or it's performed, you're like, ah, that was last month. You know, I'm mm -hmm. making something else now. I've moved on and that object is just a result of that process. But my memories and what I learned in that process is what I'm carrying forward. And that, that thing is just a thing. And I used to feel like, just take it. You can have it. Like now it's a sketch to me. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, you know, I felt a pretty big emotional uh, distance from from those moments. They, they just became things. Um, I know not everybody feels that way, but... The um, you know I think a lot of a lot of artists are experimenting and exploring and those are just moments. It's like each exhibition doesn't define the entire body, and I think that's true for filmmakers and performers and singers. That you know there's a repetition to that giving it to the public and that that uh, what comes next and what did I learn and how do I grow from that is the part that you hold for yourself. As an artist, do you look back on past pieces of art in order to inform your next piece of art? No, I think you you uh, it's a muscle memory that you bring forward. I mean, I think I don't think I'm unique in seeing pieces that I made before and thinking, oh God, you know that's horrific. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I can't have my own artwork in my home because I'd have to keep a paintbrush or a pencil next to it. So you could just keep working on it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to keep editing and making. But, you know, I don't look back on pieces. And I think artists are always interested in what can I make next. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I painted a lot. And you'd remember the mistakes and the cool thing that happened from that mistake. And you try to repeat that thing. Like, I love that part of the painting. So the next time I'm going to make that whole painting is going to be that thing. And you can never, ever, ever recreate it, ever. Mm -hmm. Like, so I've never created something that was what I thought I was creating when I started it. And I think that's the addictive part. 
That's part of the journey, too. Yeah, it's the best part. It's like, oh, that's not it, but that's that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever see a previous piece of your art from when you were, say, much younger? Um, I, I, I do this with some of my writing. Yeah. And... I look at it and I'm like, I could never write something like that because that Cody doesn't exist anymore. Oh, totally. Yeah, I, I just um, uncovered a box of my childhood artwork and was going through it. And I thought the strangest thing was I remembered every single one of them. It was like, you know, like it was an experience making that thing. I was, was really struck by how powerful the memory was of each of those um, and you, I can remember showing it to my parents and what they said about it. And I can remember, what, you know, where they hung it up. So and that was striking to me that, you know, you could show me a lot of other things from my childhood. And I'd say, oh, I don't remember that book or I don't remember that, that pair of shoes. And I don't remember that experience. And I don't remember that birthday party. But the artwork or mm-hmm. the writing was, you know, those were my memories. Um, and I could track myself through it. I could recognize the person I am now in each of those things. But also, yeah, it's complete disconnection. Like that was then. Um, you could feel like this... <laughs> building towards the self you are now and um, like a relationship with that person, but also um, who the hell was that? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I always look at them like uh, time capsules. Yeah. You know, this is the person that I was in that moment when I produced that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, I think if we don't feel that, maybe it's time to step outside and try something new. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That might mean you're a little stuck. (laughs) (laughs) Looking at the intersection of you as an artist and then also the director of the Anchorage Museum, how do those things mesh or coexist? Uh, It was really interesting when I became curator of the museum, I actually made a decision not to uh, be a a practicing artist in the way that I was – I made a decision not to present my work to the public anymore. I felt like it was in conflict with my role as a curator, which was to support the work of other artists and to be their voice and their advocate. Um, And that was a hard decision. But there was also a freedom in that, like the work I make could truly be about my own process and my own learning. And um, for me, making artwork was always a way to I'm an introvert, and I love the introversion of making artwork. Like I feel... (laughs) I feel like myself, and um, uh, so I use it almost like a way to stay whole. Um, so I like how it transitioned, what it meant to me, and that tra- transition turned out to be an important thing, like as a way to feel protected, and um, uh, it it became therapeutic instead of instead of something I had to think about presenting to a wider public, um, but. I hope that that experience, and certainly I think, you know, growing up with an artist, I think I have the sensibility of an artist. I understand how that changes your view of the world. But being around artists my whole life gave me this tremendous respect for what artists bring to our world, for what um, it can make you feel, for the ways it can make you think. I still go to museums, and I think the greatest art is the uh, when I look at it and I think, God, I want to make something. I don't want to make that, but it just makes me want to make something. Um, or when I go and I just the rest of the world disappears, and you're just um, 
you're captured um, and you're thinking about something new and you leave with a new energy and um, you're stimulated and you're thinking. And I think that's hard to find in this world. You know, there's a lot of stimulation and a lot of input and a lot of stress. And that if you can find artwork that makes you, uh, makes other things disappear and make that thing really present, uh, I think that's still remarkable. And I hope that my love of that and my passion for that um, has some value in the role I play. It's almost like a form of meditation. I don't know how, I, I mean, I feel that way about art making that, and I feel that way about, you know, it's this hyper concentration and how hard that is to find and what value that has to a lot of us, um, you know, that you can disappear into something. I think that kind of focus a lot of us crave and a lot of us miss, and um, it makes our worlds feel more hectic. Um, so there is something meditative and therapeutic about making, um, but I also think about looking. That if you're wandering around a museum, um, hopefully the rest of the world disappears for a little bit. That's great. <laughs> you know, I think that that does it for my questions. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? I don't. I'm just your uh, willing victim. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show, Julie. This thank is you. This has been great. Thank you so much. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me. Cody Liska for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 